Well, welcome to our Steadfast Bible Conference. I'm here with Dr. Mark Tatlock of the Master's Academy International. Mark, welcome. Thank you, Darren. It's great to be with you. Good to have you with us. Now, you're the, the explain your role with TMAI sure. a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, I do serve as the president of TMAI, mm -hmm. uh, which gives me just a great opportunity to really build a team and uh, develop the resources that undergird our ministry uh, around the globe. So That's excellent. Well, That's we're, our theme this year is, is the Great Commission. We've been exploring all the different aspects of that. Obviously, one of the biggest aspects that comes to mind when we think of the Great Commission is evangelism, how it pertains to um, not just globally, but even locally and in, even in our homes and all that kind of stuff. So just to give us a little bit of your understanding of the Great Commission in particular, how it relates to, to evangelism and missions. Sure, you bet. Well, I'll begin by quoting my pastor, John MacArthur, who says, uh, redemption is the meta-narrative of Scripture. Meta means grand narrative, obviously story. Mm -hmm. So what is the grand storyline of Scripture? It's the progress of redemption. And uh, one of my great joys by way of ministry is I get to teach uh, theology of missions. And I like to chart from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that arc of that storyline. And really, uh, every narrative, uh, every book of the Bible uh, contributes to that storyline in some particular fashion. And I think that's important because we need to understand what is it that God's trying to accomplish through his people. And so, um, Looking at, at your own personal participation in evangelism and discipleship making is something that every believer has an obligation to do. If it's that clear in scripture, it needs to be that clear in our own thinking mm -hmm. about our role and responsibility. I had the privilege of um, being the son of a pastor, actually the son of an evangelist. Okay. Uh, I grew up, my dad would take me out on the weekends. We used to go to the, the government migrant camps for the field workers. Mm -hmm. And that was back in the days of bus ministry. Okay. And we would go on Saturday, invite the kids to come, invite their parents to come. And then he had a, a bus driver's license. And so we'd go back Sunday morning and drive again through the neighborhood and bring the kids and their parents. And um, that was a privilege growing up with that example. That doesn't mean I always appreciated spending my Saturday morning as a yeah. kid uh, <clears throat> or being a part of that ministry. And yeah, I look back on that and I'm thankful for the example of a godly dad who had that priority set in his heart mm -hmm. and set that as a priority in our home and in his ministry. Um, he was just one of those guys who never met a stranger in the sense of, yeah. of talking to them about things of the Lord. Yeah. And I'm sorry to him, it wasn't until I was really in college that I began to cultivate that same conviction. And um, I was grateful for those who discipled me, yeah. who took me out with them and taught me how to share my faith. and gave me you know, the practical tools to actually do that with confidence. Yeah. What he started there, you're replicating, even in your own family, I know. Yeah. Your, your kids are seeing what you do as well. And, and I, I hope so, that's my prayer. <laughs> <laughs> well, this leads nicely just to kind of understanding a little bit about getting, for us to get to know TMAI a little bit, and a little bit more about you and what you're doing. Um, particularly what the Great Commission has meant for your ministry, like how you started out, how has it impacted you, how is it continuing to impact you, where is the trajectory, where did it all begin? Yeah, you bet. Thing. Well, it did begin with my dad in my own heart and my own life and seeing that example. Um, but as far as my desire to be involved in cross-cultural evangelism and missions work, 
Uh, it really was going on a short-term missions trip to the country of Brazil. Um, got to be a part of a group of students who spent almost two months in Brazil traveling uh, around the country singing. And um, I was invited to be the preacher. So we'd do a musical concert and then I'd get to mm -hmm. share the gospel. And the text I chose uh, to prepare my, my sermon from was Acts chapter 16. And it's that wonderful story of Paul and Silas being thrown into prison and then resulting, of course, after the earthquake of the Philippian jailer asking the most important question anybody mm -hmm. could ask, what must I do to be saved? So my outline was real simple. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't gone to seminary yet. So, uh, you know, you look at- You didn't at, have all the alliteration no, figured out yet? No. <laughs> well, it was short. Okay. So as Paul and Silas, what did they do, you know, in that intense trial there, uh, you know, in the prison? Something most of us would never do. They prayed mm -hmm. and they praised the Lord. And, you know, you think, how could somebody under such duress and trial respond that way? But it's because they're so anchored in the providence and glory of God, and they understood what their responsibility was in life to be faithful as witnesses to proclaim that, that they had a perspective there that even under great duress, they could be a testimony and a witness. And you think about all those who are hearing them pray and praise and the earthquake strikes. And then of course the Philippian jailer under fear and distress for his own life asks that great question but then it goes in, he answers the question, and then you see him come to faith, his household come to faith and be baptized. Well, that was my outline. I didn't know how God was gonna use that mm -hmm. in my life, but that was back in the days you would preach and then give an invitation. Mm -hmm. So I grew up kind of in that church tradition. Yeah. So I remember I was in a small little church in the city of Belém, um, there up on the Amazon, and they had uh, tr trusted me to give the sermon that night. And I gave the invitation, and I'll never forget, five individuals came down the aisle and met with some of the leaders in the church to give their life to Christ. And at the end of the service, everybody cleared out. There was a reception afterwards for our team, and I just stayed and sat on the front pew. And I began to weep because if I were to be honest, I thought missions would be the worst thing that God could call me to. My motivations on going on that trip originally were not godly motivations. I wanted the adventure, the excitement of the travel. Mm -hmm. It was all self-serving. But when I sat on that front pew, I felt like God had opened up my eyes to see the souls of people with a whole new understanding. And for the first time in my life, I experienced being there at the threshold of eternity mm -hmm. and just being one instrument in seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And my entire perspective changed. Mm -hmm. And I just begin to understand the greatest thing that God can call believers to do is to be a part of the work of evangelism and missions. Mm -hmm. And um, came back from that trip, I was gonna be an attorney. My dreams were go to law school. I had my plans all mapped out. Yeah. But by the time the Lord uh, had me decide between law school and seminary, he made it clear in my heart what I needed to pursue. And that put me on a course of being involved in missions. Yeah. But within that, uh, what became my passion was creating opportunities for students or individuals in the church to stand on that threshold mm -hmm. with people. And so I just began to lead summer missions trips and get involved in local evangelism. And, and that became a joy for me is to see others have the same experience I had mm -hmm. and then realize, wow, this really is the greatest privilege that a believer can have you don't have to be fearful of it. You don't have to worry about it. Um, but you need to, 
to open your heart up to it and yeah. be willing to go forward wherever the Lord would lead you. And it's been an amazing life experience yeah. for me yeah. to be a part of God's plan of redemption in a very small way. Mm -hmm. But it's an absolute joy and privilege. And TMAI, from what I understand, is really trying to make that bridge from evangelism to, as the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Explain a little bit about how that has developed. That's a great question. And it's important to understand the bridge between evangelism and really the heart of the Great Commission, which is making disciples. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not enough just to make converts. But what Christ is saying in the Great Commission is you want to see people mature to the fullness of Christ's likeness, and then they can reproduce themselves. So when you think in terms of the Great Commission and the teaching the converts to observe all that I have commanded you, that is the work of the local church. And God has raised up and equipped people with gifts and training to be teachers and disciplers and counselors and so forth. So our focus at TMI is how do you strengthen the local church yeah. to make disciples? And obviously that begins with making converts, so evangelism has to be a big part of their ministry. But if you look at what's happening in missions uh, on a, on a low, larger scope, you realize the majority of missionary work is focused just on making converts. And sadly today, very few people are actually church men and women. Hmm. And so they're not even thinking in terms of bringing people into the church. And to the extent they're more focused maybe on quantifying results, which would be numbers of converts and things like this, they lose sight of the qualitative aspect of really seeing people raised up into maturity. And so uh, we don't want to make that mistake. Uh, actually, just the opposite. We want to focus on strengthening the church so that when that new convert is brought into the congregation, they hear truth. Mm -hmm. They hear truth from the pulpit. They hear truth from Sunday school teachers. They hear truth from disciples. They hear truth spoken by one another. And it's the consistency of truth that's in accord with God's Word and what He's revealed to us that produces the transformation in the life. That person, as they mature, then can go out and make disciples. So that's the reproduction model that Christ ordained. And what we want to do at TMAI is invest our best efforts and energies to make sure that the truth is rightly taught in the context of the local church. So our mission at TMAI is aligned with the Great Commission and that is to equip and train uh, qualified pastor teachers and, and, and church leaders to faithfully communicate the truth of God's Word. Most people who come to faith in Christ are coming out of a background of confusion, uh, deception by false religion, uh, abuse, frankly, of, of cults that exploit them financially, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Sadly, some of those things are carried into churches and they're propagated by men and leaders who haven't been trained how to rightly divide God's Word. Mm -hmm. So they take what's practical or pragmatic or the most recent things that they've heard or have been influenced by and bring that into the church. And that's devastating uh, when there's a genuine convert mm -hmm. uh, because they're hearing confusion, they're hearing heresy and lies. What we get excited about is to see God's Word shine as a bright light in the context of the church that leads people out of that darkness, out of that confusion, and then allows them to pursue a life of integrity. I would put it this way. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to live the truth. Hmm. And that's the beauty uh, and design of God's 
body, yeah. right? It's the life on life, the iron sharpening iron yeah. that we have to do with each other. Yeah. You may tell me what you believe, but I might see something different in your life based on your values, the way you treat your wife, and that really gets into the heart issues. Absolutely. So when you see a church that is anchored in the truth in its preaching, teaching, and discipling ministry, you begin to see a transformation, not just of the individual, but the body at large. Mm -hmm. And I think you're really then in a position to see, realize what John speaks about in 1 John. Chapter four, he talks about no man's seen the Father. You know, earlier he'd said in his gospel, chapter one, no one's seen the Father, but Christ reveals him to us. Now he looks at the church and he says, as you are perfected in the love of Christ, you reveal the Father. And we know even by Christ's own words that when you shine as a bright light and you practice your good deeds before men, which is living out godly decisions and in obedience and actions and behavior, people will see the Father and be drawn to, to know Him and to worship Him. Mm-hmm. And this is important. And, and I think that a lot of churches don't understand the significance of pursuing holiness and sanctification with its gospel witness. And so if a church isn't grounded in the truth, they're not committed to seeing that truth transform lives, then its public witness is always going to be compromised. It's just essential to see those two things together. Uh, I think a lot of times we view sanctification through, uh, particularly an American lens, where everything is about self-interest, individualism. But really the greater purpose in sanctification is not just the benefit you and I enjoy by having fellowship with God, not being hindered by sin, the blessings that He can extend to us, and the joy it is to walk with Him. But the greater purpose is that His character is put on display before a lost and fallen world. That's why division in the church, disunity, a lack of mercy and compassion, uh, resolving conflict through the granting and seeking of forgiveness is so necessary because the world hears a gospel message that we proclaim that a God who is merciful and forgiving and just and compassionate will actually forgive you, the vilest of offender, Mm -hmm. the one who can't meet his holy standard. And they look at us and we can't even forgive our friend for a minor offense. Mm -hmm. What confidence could that give them that God has the power to transform a life and forgive them? Mm -hmm. So pastors need to understand that. Um, And all of that is accomplished through dividing the truth faithfully, bringing a knowledge of the scriptures in its entirety, its fullness accurately to a congregation. And so there is no distinction between God's purpose and work for the local church and even sanctifying them through the truth and his purpose in the progress of redemption. They go hand in hand. That's excellent. Thank you for that. Help us also understand, well, actually, maybe just give even some personal examples. I mean, because I know you're, you're full of stories because <laughs> you've been everywhere and you know everyone. Um, some of those great areas where you've seen this played out really well, like these aspects of the Great Commission and some of your dealings of, with people and the interactions you've had, some of the great sure. things there. Well, an example that comes to mind that has just been a joy uh, to have a chance to know about we have a school in South Africa, it's called Christ Seminary. It's in the northern part of the country, a town called Polokwane. And they've just done a fantastic job over the years, over 20 years of, of training pastors, some from villages, some from urban contexts. But there was a young man who went there named Sammy Lovato. And Sammy is actually from Johannesburg. 
Sammy went there, got trained in the truth, was discipled, uh, had that transformation occur. If you talk to his wife, he'll tell you for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, she has witnessed the change not only in his own life, but in their marriage, their family, their home. But God raised Sammy up for a great purpose, and that was to pastor a church in um, Soweto, which is one of the well-known townships uh, near Johannesburg. And many of us are familiar with the history uh, of apartheid in South Africa. And we talk about politics and race and class, issues that divide men. Mm -hmm. um, those very issues have crept into the church as well. And so getting to know Sammy, uh, getting to hear about his ministry, learning what God's doing through his church in Soweto as a result of being equipped and trained, their gospel testimony, mm -hmm. not just generally speaking, but particularly contending with the issues of poverty and race and class, which is such a, a struggle for them, that they're able to overcome that, mm -hmm. to cross those racial lines and to begin to see people come to faith in Christ and unified in his body. And, I, and when I think about your question, I think about those examples of that, that transformative work of the truth through a man who's been equipped and trained to shepherd his people, to live their lives in a way that really is radical with regard to the, the world systems. Mm -hmm. That's the shining of a bright light. Yeah. This is, who's the God that you worship? Yeah. What does your God have to say about our life circumstances? And people come because the shadows of deception, the shadows of confusion have been removed mm -hmm. by the truth. Mm -hmm. And they find their path to know God. I, I almost hate to ask this, <laughs> but what are some of the pitfalls you've seen also take place in, in the Great Commission? Or? Oh, goodness, yeah. Well, big picture, uh, and particularly those of us from an American perspective or a Western perspective, we carry with us, unfortunately, some of our cultural ethics, even into our, our most noble endeavors for the kingdom. And what I see as a pervasive influence that's very alarming is uh, pragmatism. Hmm. Uh, as Americans, we define success or what's good by numbers. Hmm. Bigger is always better for us. And as soon as you adopt that as a definition of success, then you're going to adapt your methodologies uh, to assure that outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, we hear things like, uh, you know, how many Bibles can we translate in our generation? You know, there's over 6,400 known languages. So many have been translated. Our goal is in the next 25 years to complete the remaining 3,000 languages. Hmm. Um, or if it's in the focus of church planting and we want to see good, sound, biblical churches planted, well, we're going to plant 100 churches in the next 10 years. Uh, I heard of one individual uh, in India claiming they planted 50,000 churches in one year. When you start thinking that way, a very pragmatic way, you're going to compromise the, the criteria and the standards for faithful and accurate Bible translation, for faithful and accurate um, church planting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these things then lead to a lot of confusion in the name of Christ. Uh, if you want to plant 100 churches in the next 10 years, that could be something God could use you and a force of missionaries to do. But see, the numeric goal drives mm -hmm. your methodology. And if you're willing to compromise your methodology because it's not informed by clear biblical principles um, and a philosophy of church planting, then you're going to end up planting a bunch of churches 
but there won't be mature leadership. Mm. That means people are going to be poorly taught and confused. A lot of people who maybe initially come to faith in Christ will wander away. Mm. Um, and what good have we done in the end? Yeah. Other than writing some great missionary letters, we pat ourselves on the back and we justify raising a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We've got to come back to the New Testament model. And the model there is, again, the Great Commission mm -hmm. resulting in sound biblical churches who then can make disciples in their own community. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that takes a long pattern of faithfulness mm -hmm. with maybe not immediate results. Yeah. And we have to humble ourselves and we really need to repent from a lot of those ungodly motivations and ethics that corrupt our methodology. That's one thing I've always appreciated about TMAI, um, to be honest. It's it, the, the slow, methodical, it's not like you're just trying to plant them everywhere. You're very intentional with the places that you have yeah. put centers in, and you're very careful with who you put into the positions of leadership there. How much? I mean, this sounds pragmatic now, but how many how many centers are there with TMAI? No, we can talk about numbers now. Okay, you know uh, this, is, this is all right now. <laughs> well, because you understand yeah. our heart behind it and yeah. what our goal is. The numbers do tell a story mm -hmm. of what God's doing. And I think as many uh, of the folks in your church know, we don't have a strategy to just plant training centers. We come into a country at the invitation of national church leaders who see the need for their leaders to be trained to exposit the scriptures faithfully, mm -hmm. accurately. And so when we respond to those invitations, there, there's already a testimony of the work of God. There's a hunger, there's an appetite, there's a recognition of the need for this. And we just go to serve them. Mm -hmm. And the greatest joy, particularly if we start off with a team of Americans, is in passing the baton to mm -hmm. that next generation of national leaders. That's always our goal. Mm -hmm. We're not looking to try to further our own kingdom. We're just trying to help them accomplish the right things in their own culture, their own language, and to support them in that endeavor. So, having said that, uh, the Lord's done a remarkable work. Today we have 17 training centers around the world. And because many of our pastors are bivocational, meaning they can't just pick up their family and move to a location, what happens over time after a few generations of, of leaders are trained is they'll go back to their churches, pastor them, and then invite us to open up an extension. Hmm. So we have 17 schools, but we actually have over 75 extension locations wow. around the world. It's amazing. And then those are, allow us to train more guys in that local context. They graduate, they go on, and, hmm. and then it multiplies itself that sense. So where we're at today, and this is pretty amazing, is we have 20 brand new schools in development. Uh, we expect that we'll have seven schools apply for candidacy just in the next year. We don't take credit for that. This mm -hmm. is the work of, of God already at work in his church, raising up leaders who have a hunger for the truth, and we simply just to mm -hmm. go serve them. And that kind of leads me to kind of another topic here. Okay. We're, <laughs> we're in a global, weird kind of day and age right now. Things yeah. are not normal. Like after 9-11, everything changed. Yep. And I think we're, we're entering into what we're going to call now a post-COVID world, essentially. How has, or what will the Great Commission and our call in the Great Commission look like in a post-COVID world? And I think you especially, because you have this international focus mm. 
and this is a global thing issue that we're dealing with. What's what's the Great Commission look like in a post-COVID world? Well, I say all the time, even in light of COVID, I don't think there is a more exciting time to be a part of the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. uh, the opportunities we have today exceed any generation's opportunities before. Mm -hmm. uh, even with restrictions on travel, our generation travels, we hope we'll get to do that again yeah. sometime. With technology, the advances, both in translation of content, distribution of content, uh, and, and far-reaching implications of that for equipping and training. Uh, when we think about really, maybe the more fundamental issue in the, in the period of COVID, you have to understand, I think you do, that it's people in crisis who ask eternal questions. Mm -hmm. When life's going great, and you're numbing the effects of the fall, you can kind of salve your conscience, salve your heart, you know, but when things fall apart, you lose your job, or you have chronic health issues, or someone dies as a result of, of illness, or on and on, just the despair in our world, politically, mm -hmm. confusion, on. There are more people today probably asking genuine, eternal questions, such as, is there really a God? Mm -hmm. And if he is, why is he allowing this to happen? If, if he does exist, does he care about me? Uh, what will happen if I do get sick and I face death? If the church would realize the historic opportunity it has to, just like Christ, move towards people who are broken, confused, hurting, and be in a position to answer those eternal questions, mm -hmm. I think we should expect to see a large movement of people coming to faith in Christ during these days. You will never hear that on the evening news. No. They're going to report all the problems and all the headaches. Yeah. And, and you said it, Darren, I appreciate it. Almost every day I'm Zooming with somebody around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know it's a privileged position to sit in. And so I'm glad to share this with you. We have been hearing now for almost eight months testimonies, literally, from a network of guys around the world talking about what God's doing in their lives, in their churches, in their communities positioned to bring the truth to bear to answer those eternal mm -hmm. questions. Um, and so I don't know what the future is going to hold uh, <laughs> in the near term. We know the long-term picture. Yeah. It's not going to get better. No. <laughs> um, and so we need to be serious mm -hmm. about redeeming the days, taking every opportunity to leverage for the gospel. And I think if we thought in terms of what are the resources available to us, and then think in terms of how to create more more opportunities mm -hmm. uh, to see the truth advance, uh, we will have been found faithful. Well, and you were describing to me earlier before we were on camera, some of the way you're connecting some of the missionaries to, to local people, oh, yeah. your local church, a little, explain yeah. a little bit more about well, yeah, even here some at, of the opportunities that have been able to be afforded. Oh yeah, I'm glad to. Yeah, even here at Grace Church, uh, something we've never done before is do video interviews with our missionaries. Mm -hmm. We would do Zoom calls for prayer meetings and things, but uh, we never set to really interview them mm -hmm. and hear not just about their ministry, but tell me your testimony. Yeah. Tell me your wife's testimony. What are your kids like? And so we've worked to create some videos that capture more of an intimate, personal mm -hmm. understanding of our missionaries. Um, and we've been posting those on our church website. And we realized, whoa, this is a way to engage our whole church family in a more personal way mm -hmm. uh, using uh, the media uh, of a video. The other thing that, um, that's benefited us is we have a whole bunch of missionaries lined up to go to the field, mm -hmm. but with churches not being open, they can't share their ministry, they can't 
meet with their church missions committee. And so it's created a little bit of a backlog mm -hmm. for our folks who want to get to the field. Um, and so these video interviews have allowed them to share those with churches, their stories, but it also has raised awareness of their need. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind, I'm not ashamed to do it because this is for the work of the Lord. I always say at the end of the, those videos, hey, we need your help, Yeah. okay? Um, we need your help to pray, we need your help to give and get behind these folks so that when the restrictions change, they can get there and uh, pick up their work, mm -hmm. so. Well, the Lord does seem to grow His church during times of trial. I yeah, mean, that's true. It, it always seems to be that picture that we see. And, and I think these are exciting days. I think we've been afforded new opportunities that we've never been afforded. And we've kind of been pushed to a brink we've never been pushed to. Yeah. Um, what, and you just touched on this a little bit, kind of as we bring this to a close. What is the most important thing we can be praying for and supporting you in your efforts? And what would be an encouragement to us in how we can also, our little church in Bakersfield, um, be supportive of, of the Great Commission, not just TMAI, but what we can be doing as, as a local body, even ourselves. If you'd have any advice or... Sure. Well, first I'll respond just personally as far as TMAI. Growth is an exciting thing, but mm -hmm. it's a risky thing. Mm -hmm. um, how do you scale up by way of your support to make sure that you're providing good attention and care and excellence mm -hmm. in, in what you do and accountability and management of finances and gifts and giving. So we have a great team. We've been building towards that end and um, we have a good plan going forward, but we do need wisdom. Uh, again, we don't want to yield to the temptation that, hey, look at us, look at all that we're doing. We want that qualitative personal care and attention and we want to grow in accord with God's timing, mm -hmm. not get ahead of Him. Um, but the other question, uh, or aspect of your question, what can we be doing during these days, mm -hmm. even personally as a local church? Uh, you know, I say it all the time. We live in the most globalized world today. There are no borders any longer. Mm -hmm. So we can't think in terms of missions as something over there. Missions, and what I mean by that, missions is cross-cultural mm -hmm. disciple making. Every one of us, no matter what your industry is, education, business, healthcare, uh, food services, um, athletics, wherever God has set you, that's his unique calling, particular calling that he's assigned to you. But I want to challenge you to think about the cross-cultural opportunities to reach the nations. Uh, if you just look at the cubicles around you at work, more than likely, either them or the people they're on the phone with represent multitude of nations. So that's why it's so exciting today is there's really no excuse for every believer, no matter where God has set them, to participate in cross-cultural ministry. But you've got to look up and recognize the opportunity. That it's there. Absolutely. And then it just gets exciting. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I can't wait to get out of bed every morning because of that perspective that I was taught to have by my dad, by others who discipled me. And it's just about an ex expectant, mm -hmm. uh, watchful posture. And of course, we want to pray for those opportunities. Mm -hmm. So most importantly, we need to pray, and God will guide us to faith and obedience. I, I love the full circleness that you brought her, that it started when you were a child, and you're, we're, we're showing that to children now, and yeah. a great thing to just involve the entire family in, in that whole aspect. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. No, you're welcome. This was a, a great encouragement to me, and I hope an encouragement to many others as well as we proceed forward in a volatile world. and, and but. The wonderful steadfastness of the Lord continues on, and we're grateful to, to have you as part of it. 
No, absolutely. It's been a joy, and that is the case, isn't it? Yeah. Unmovable. Yeah. We're not confused about who we are, what we're called to do, or the God we serve. Amen. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. You're welcome.